0: Section twenty two of The Heirloom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Heirloom by T. Duthie Lyle. Section twenty two. What the World told. When, on the morning following the calamitous fire, among the wharves and warehouses and dwellings of Long Island City, Colonel Vandermulen, in pursuit of his peculiar calling, sought once again the vicinity of Battery Park, he became aware that the previous night's adventure and disaster and its results had wrought about, with regard to himself and the English business which so fully occupied his daily and nightly thoughts, a certain shifting of the scenes. We have written above the words peculiar calling and certez, a peculiar calling or profession that the unearthing and elucidation of the dark ways of mystery, of crime and all its hydra-headed shapes and ramifications which Colonel Van meulen and his brethren pursue, Certez, a peculiar calling it is. But that the un-Americanized reader may be made more fully to comprehend the part which the cute colonel has come to be playing in the working out of the tragic drama, the secret history of which is the purpose of this book, we will explain that, Although individuals practice the same calling of shadowing and investigating, among the great masses of our own metropolis and other populous cities, the ferreting out of the secrets of lives both high and low, yet in England the profession of the private detective is one of those byways of life which, through shame rather than through modesty, dislikes to raise its head, but rather skulks in the shadows of darkness and of night, and the followers of the craft hail from the seclusion of some private alley or court and face the light of publicity in a shame-faced mood. But on the American continent, and in the cosmopolitan city of New York, the profession occupies in the social hive a more recognized place, and the New York detective agency, as glaringly and openly flaunts its sign and its raison d'etre before the world, as if that raison d'etre were the providing of mankind with any of the daily needed luxuries or necessities of life. Nay, perhaps so they do. Neither too, as some may suppose, is our friend Colonel Vandermeulen an impossible, or indeed a very uncommon type, for, at the conclusion of the anti-slavery feuds, the American citizen who had readily and heartily, nay with burning enthusiasm, quitted the office or the warehouse for the camp and the carnage and the risks of battle, and had taken up the sword in defense of his espoused cause, had at the conclusion of the struggle as easily laid his weapons aside and resumed the arts of peace. It is a specimen of this manner of American citizen, neither civilian nor military, or perhaps it would be more correct to say a combination of both, that we have introduced for the carrying out of the incidents of this tale. So when Colonel Vandermeulen calmly reviewed the position, he recognized that circumstances were a little changed. The strange, unknown midnight visitor at his little office near Battery Park of a week or two before had told Vandermeulen if all other information failed, he would meet him in a month's time to the hour at a secluded spot in Central Park. And now one thing was patent to Colonel Vandermeulen's mind. Neither he, the colonel, nor the little ferret man, Paul Newgass, his tout, had a shadow of doubt but that the midnight visitor to their Battery Park den and the man whom they had seen attempt such an act of conspicuous daring in his attempt to save the perishing woman's life were identical, were one and the same man. And after the scene and catastrophe of the fire, Colonel Vandermeulen felt quite sure, quite satisfied in his mind, that whatever might happen in some future world, neither the woman who with the falling crash of the house and timbers into the midst of the roaring, devouring element, nor the man who with such a reckless disregard for his own life and safety had sought to rescue her, neither the one nor the other would he ever meet again in this. Arriving at his Battery Park office in the midst of these reflections, Colonel Vandermeulen took up the early morning edition of The New York World, unopened upon his desk, and still damp, odorous and unpleasant with the smell of printer's ink, and there, headed in the sensational style of American journalism, conspicuous in all the glories of boxwood, pika, and great primer, his eye fell upon the words. Tremendous conflagration at Long Island City. Ten millions of dollars burned. Merville Garnier even dies to save his lover. Kathleen Venner perishes horridly in the flames, exciting scenes. And then, in the same attempt at producing in the minds of his readers a heart-stirring, blood-curdling effect, in that semi-florid, semi-sentimental tone which is the abasement of a great language, in the contempt and disgust of the true student of the pure well of English undefiled, the ubiquitous world's reporter, in the abounding exuberance of his misguided verbosity, went on in the same mortification of style, yet with astonishing minuteness, and with those occasional gleams and grains of shrewd common sense which appear intermixed with such a redundancy of wordy refuse to tell the world's readers the story of the appalling scene. Nor was this all, for halfway down the world's page the ingenious compiler of the report was able to insert, for the study and admiration of his numerous readers, one of those rough-and-ready but accurate pen-and-ink portraits of the man whom he reported was Merville Garnier, and worked up into the hero of his narrative, who in sentimental, romantic tone he asserted had, when clasping his lover, whom he died to save in his arms, had, with her been burnt to a cinder in the fierce flames. How, or where, the ubiquitous world reporter could have procured such a striking likeness of the man Mervaux Garnier, whom he gravely and positively asserted had been burnt to a cinder in the flames, it is not easy to surmise, but it was perhaps by the exercise of one of these feats of leisure de which form one of the secrets of which the world at large knows little, of the reporter's trade, and which Colonel Vandermulen felt he would very much like to know. Be that as it may, when Colonel Vandermulen, side by side, compared the ingenious world reporter's rough and ready pen-and-ink sketch of the face with the costly portrait, as in death, which he had received from his English correspondent, Dr. Sirius Wells, there remained no doubt in the colonel's mind that, whether living or dead, The portraits were portraits of one and the same man. But whether the subject were living, or whether he were dead, the whole mysterious surroundings had had the effect of fermenting the New York detective's interest to a pitch of fever heat in the prosecution of his case. Not only, too, had there ignited in his breast a genuine interest, a determination, if it were within the bounds of possibility, to sift to the bottom, for his own satisfaction, the mystery which enveloped and surrounded the whole affair of Bertram Ganahl's life or death, But should he succeed, there hung at the end of his labors that tempting bait of the five thousand pound money reward. So, without further ceremony, Colonel Vandermielen sauntered round to one or two of the steamship offices, most of which are situated within a few minutes' stroll of his little den in Battery Park, made his selection of a berth, and then and there, producing a big roll of greenbacks from his fob, paid his first-class passage, if we may so express it, to another world. The following day the steamer was to sail, and on the morning of that day, laden with impedimenta consisting only of a small trunk and a valise, the redoubtable colonel might have been seen rolling along in a West Street horse car towards one of the wharves, where was moored his home for the next ten or twelve days of his life. Punctual to her appointed time, the great steamer backed out from her moorings and slewed round to the stream. There was the usual kissing of hands, the usual little shower of tears, the usual flutter of dainty Cambric handkerchiefs in the ocean air, and the usual ado, and then, under a bright sunshine and over a sparkling sea, the great steamer steamed away, and the next time that Colonel Vandermulen set his foot on land, it was in Liverpool docks. Without delay, like a man who has a definite purpose in view, rather than as one who lingers to admire the scenery on the way, he drove through the great busy Lancashire seaport town, to Lime Street Station, and in about five hours was in the center of English metropolitan life, and in a handsome cab careering through the largest and perhaps the busiest city of the world, till he found himself, and his scanty luggage, landed in the little court near Whitehall, which was the London den of his shrewd but homely confrere, Dr. Sirius Wells. The traveler mounted some stairs to the English confrere's sanctum, and, as he had been apprised by wire of the arrival of his American cousin, Dr. Sirius Wells was at home. Then there were the usual salutations, for they were not quite strangers, and soon these two confreres were absorbed in the discussion of the case. What comprised the case was, of course, the whole mystery which surrounded Bertram Gonall's death. But like many keen, shrewd, hard-headed men, Colonel Vandermullin was a confirmed skeptic, not in religion, for perhaps he had no religion except the worship of Mammon, but a confirmed skeptic in the daily affairs of the world, and the events that came before him in everyday life. He had seen enough of the undercurrent of human motives and human actions, enough of cheats and frauds and hoaxes and shams, to make him believe only what he saw clearly with his own eyes, and to disbelieve a very big fraction, even, of that. He believed that the man whom he had seen hurried headlong amid a debris of crashing timbers into the midst of the flames of the great fire at Long Island City was dead. Nobody who saw the catastrophe could doubt or dispute the fact though he little thought how rudely soon even that belief was to be shattered. He believed it, because he had seen it with his own eyes, but no assurances, no arguments that his confrere Dr. Sirius Wells could adduce, were sufficient to convince the unbelieving American detective, Colonel Vandermullen, that the person whose death he was asked to investigate until then was in truth and verity actually and really dead. Dr. Sirius Wells argued and talked, talked till he was tired, hoarse, provoked, and talked till he felt that he could have kicked the man whom he was endeavoring to convince, which would have been a serious thing, from the top to the bottom of his stairs, but the other, obdurate, unconvertible, unconvinced, said little in reply, but he quietly shook his head. Then, shocking to relate, Dr. Sirius Wells expressed the vehemence of his dissent by the utterance of very improper words. The American produced the copy of The New York World, and exhibited in support of his argument the rough and ready Penninink portrait of the man whom he asserted he had seen alive, who had visited him, and whom he now knew as Merville Garnier, and had witnessed to meet an untimely and terrible end, while attempting an act of such bravery and daring in the flames. The perfect similarity between the world reporter's Penninink portrait, and a likeness, which he himself had in his possession, of Bertram Ganahl, even Dr. Sirius Wells himself could not dispute. In fact, so strong was Colonel Vandermeulen's evidence and his homely argument that a man couldn't be dead while he was alive, that Dr. Sirius Wells, even almost doubting the evidence of his own senses, began to veer round to the opinion that by some inexplicable twisting of circumstances, that instead of being really dead, Bertram Gonall had added only yet another freak to the many eccentricities and excesses, nay, madnesses, for many of his acts truly had been nothing better than madnesses, of the later years of his life, and while allowing himself to be reported as dead, murdered brutally, had, alive and in the flesh, satiated with European indulgences and European dissipations, and soured by the wreck of his life's deepest and truest happiness and the disappointment of his love, had transported himself back again to the great free country whose travel is boundless, whose prairies are limitless, whose lakes are seas, and where wealth is even more honored and poverty more despised, and where the vast resources of a millionaire such as Bertram Gannal was seemed to promise even greater pleasures, and greater means of increase and return, than they did in the pent island of his adoption, whereas Colonel Vandermielen put it cruelly and ironically, he might fear to go out on a foggy night in the dark, for fear he would step over the edge of the little island into the sea. "'But did you actually see this man Ganahl after he was dead?' asked the American. To this Dr. Sirius Wells had to confess that he had not. "'Then,' retorted the American, "'my position is the stronger, because I have seen him alive.' And so the two men parted, these two of the acutest intellects of London and New York, the two acutest in their profession agreed to differ and to part. Not that they absolutely quarreled, although they came very close to not being friends. Their relations were what, perhaps for want of a better word, we call strained, that is drawn out so far asunder, so attenuated, so fine, that another pull on the bond of friendship, a feeling that united them, and the bond would altogether break. Under the circumstances, Colonel Vandermeulen considered perhaps the wisest course he could take was to leave his friend alone, so he very quietly took up his quarters at a small private hotel in the midst of London in Craven Street near Sharon Cross and waited patiently some further development of events. When Colonel Vandermeulen arrived in London, the English summer was on the wane. It seems one of the mysteries of that fickle child which carries on its flirting wings the behests of civilization and fashion, that men and women, the sons and daughters of the wealthy and the great, whose resources permit them to wander hither and thither through the world at their own sweet wills, should choose to be stifled in the choking, almost vitiated atmospheres of hot and crowded rooms and the desert wastes of the interminable streets of a great city, when far and wide over a beauteous land the songs and smiles and showers of vernal nature and of overabounding life, by coppice and hedgerow, by woodland cool and meadow sweet, by the rolling river, by placid lank and rattling stream, by land and sea and sky and shore, the world of nature invites them to enjoy, and sings unceasingly a heavenward song of praise. But so it is. For the tyranny of fashion, is it not a condition of inscrutable bondage to the wise? When the American detective arrived in London, the polite world was, for that year, just awakening to the conviction that, from the follies of fashion, it was time to quit its summer haunt, to throw aside the high silk hat, the crowning delusion of the period, and, in more rational garb, to seek cooler shades. The throngs in the London parks looked jaded and flagged and fagged, while the hot, stifling, blazing suns of August converted Piccadilly and the Strand into somewhat of the aspect and temperature of arid waterless wastes traversed by those travellers in life's journey who are condemned by their devotion to a fickle goddess to endure the penance of a prescribed number of uncomfortable days. Among many of the wealthier and more independent who had left or were quitting town were many of Mr. Lumley's aristocratic clientele, and the important lawyer, finding that the calls and consultations of his clients were, through their increasing and conspicuous absence from town, daily becoming more rare, till the business of his office amounted to the insignificant farce of being almost nothing at all, he had quitted the quiet street near Lincoln's Fields for a select watering-place, which it will be quite near enough for our purpose if we designate as Burlington on Sea. Consequently, on this a very desirable interview which would otherwise have taken place between the great London lawyer and the arch-detective of New York was, in an inconvenient way, delayed and postponed." During these arid London days, Colonel Vannermuelen, in a purposeless way, all the while chafing under the enforced interval of inaction and idleness, into which circumstances now and again perhaps forced the busiest of us, in a listless way endured the thraldom of London life. He smoked his ten-cent Havanas, or read the newspapers in the cooler shade but stuffy atmosphere of his little Craven Street hotel, or sat on a two-penny iron chair and viewed fashion and folly personified in the park. He had few or no intimates in London but Dr. Sirius Wells, and him he allowed to follow his own opinions, for he felt that further intercommunication between him and his now almost antagonist would come dangerously and unpleasantly near to bringing about a breach of the peace. And this he did not desire. But while Colonel Van der Mulen was thus peacefully becalmed, resting on the placid sea of life, there happened to him what I can only best compare to one of those meteoric bolts which come out of a sky of unclouded calm and blue. Truly it was a little thing, but little things often indicate great events. The direction of the little leaflet as it whirls from its topmost parent twig may foretell the coming of an angry, mighty blast. And the little thing which came to Colonel Vandermeulen, as day by day he tried, by trifling distractions to get rid of his time, was a leaflet, not a withered item of foliage from a tree such as we have given as an illustration above. But it was a leaflet which proved, that is, as Colonel Vandermeulen now thought, if anything ever proved anything at all which certainly now he did not believe that it did, or that there was any such thing as proof or any such words as proof in the Dictionary of the Wise, an extraordinary and astonishing thing. And the way it came about was this. Colonel Van der Meulen, on leaving New York, had left instructions with those who, during his absence attended to his affairs, to send to him any communications addressed to his business quarters in the Empire City. It was, among a batch of such communications, That an envelope directed in a shaky, scrawly, scarcely decipherable calligraphy came into his hand. It was addressed to him at his battery Park den, and had come in the usual way, by United States Mail through the post office in New York. The detective broke the seal. On a piece of a leaf torn from a pocket or memorandum book, written upon, evidently by the same shaky hand, and characters traced in lines as uncertain and ill-defined as an insect would have left behind, if it had crawled intelligently over the paper with inky feet. Colonel Vandermuelen managed, with some difficulty, to read the following. "'You will not have forgotten the time at which I told you that we might meet, and I would tell you something to your advantage, at a certain spot, at a certain hour, just one month from our last meeting in Central Park. Now that I cannot keep that appointment, I will await you at the same spot and at the same time of one hour to midnight and two months from our interview instead of one.' That was all it said." The scrawly epistle bore no signature, no address, no date, but only those few lines traced in the big, scrawly, dragging writing, comparable to nothing so much, as we said, as to an insect crawling over the paper, with inky feet. End of section 22